like I think you know the iron cage doesn't capture the fluidity the idea of it just as an iron cage or something rigid doesn't capture that dynamism and that sense of pregnant possibility which Berman captures more effectively but it does capture something about the rigidity of large-scale bureaucratic social organization and um, the threat that large organizations and large hierarchical kind of structures pose to the individual that is also a genuine experience of modernity if not a complete one an experience of modern social life of capitalism even if max weber himself wouldn't use terms in that way so yes but I, I think it's interesting that he berman suggests a lineage of sorts between weber and then marcuse and then foucault which is probably an unlikely sort of uh, pairing, well, it's not a pairing, it's three of them. I don't know what you call a pair of three, but anyway, um, where he sees in, in uh, Weber this sort of, again, this sort of neo-Olympian disdain for um, not just for the cage, but also for those who are held Why in the Why Surely just Olympian. Well, that's a good question. I don't know. He says neo-Olympian. I, I, uh, but anyway, um, the, yeah, so th this kind of uh, looking down from on high and going, yes, we're all controlled, we're all uh, dominated by bureaucratic structures, and we're all kind of feeble and unable to break out for them or kind of emaciated subjects and in some ways kind of pathetic. And so there's a loathing, not just for the structures, but for, for the people as well. And he finds that to a certain extent in the Marcusean New Left, where instead of, uh, you know, denunciations of mass man, you get denunciations, as, as you had in the you know earlier part of the 20th century, you get a one dimensional man, uh, which led, you know, the, the New Left either to search for new subjects outside. So whether it's in the third world or for, you know, criminals or lumpen proletarians or whoever else or minorities within society who would be the new proletarian that the new revolutionary subjects and not uh, the working class or to despair. And that element of, uh, of, of despair is something that he sees in, in Weber, as I said, you know, it's kind of, it ends up with this sort of tragic liberalism where, you know, you want to be a liberal individualist, but you don't really believe in the possibilities of uh, true individualism. And then again, finally in Foucault, where, where he, he concludes, which in some ways, I, I guess, Berman suggests he's the last modernist or the last guy to problematize modernity properly and uh and foucault also dwells in iron bars and human nullities and sees no real possibility for freedom and again this is what phil mentioned earlier about the the foucault in some ways being the intellectual reflection of the failure and disappointments of the 1960s so it's interesting that there's a kind of thread that he teases uh, out there in these in these very different thinkers um which is a common attitude to, to modernity a common attitude which doesn't uh, is, un is unable to really see the possibility for subjectivity and modernity and only sees the kind of crushing dead weight of uh, bureaucracy and massive structures and so on. No, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. You know, the, <clears throat> the continuity between those, I guess, essentially kind of negative theorists of modernity, seeing society as an iron cage, seeing everything as a, a prison, seeing um, all people as, as one dimensional and not political actors. And, you know, that, that that kind of um i think it's it's quite kind of a all leads to a political dead end i think that's that was very well put and that actually leads us nicely on to what i wanted to sort of finish on which is the i guess it's sort of the the political consequences of of you know we may actually have disagreed as to whether there is a marxist theory of modernity um but you know what does it mean that we live in a visibly 
contradictory society if 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 you would accept that this is the case or at least that Berman was right at the time of writing that this this was the case at that point in time that everything seemed pregnant with its contrary and this is a this is a kind of I think a defining political starting point of um of Berman's project at least I mean is this is there a possibility to master these these contradictions politically but I think so I mean it's um it's the ultimate question because it's not that there is there a possibility i mean it's the premise the premise of marxism i think is that it is necessary that these um contradictions be overcome and that the contradictions themselves necessitate their overcoming and i think that is in fact the the goal of marxism is to the very fact that it exists or that revolutionary marxism as at least as the 19th century the way it emerged in the 19th century was conceived as possible by virtue of the internally conflicted the internal contradictions of um industrial modern industrial society and it's the hardest it's the most difficult and hardest thing and i think it is what makes marxist specifically marxist politics so um difficult um, and we've touched upon, I mean, you know, we've touched upon this partly before about in a yeah, previous the last episode. reading club, yeah, yeah, in the last last reading club, but we talked about the fact, you know, that Marxism kind of, um, on the one hand, it emerges when we, yeah, it was the Tamash reading, it emerges from um, frustration at injustice, um, popular anger with oppression, um, and yet it seeks to go beyond those things, um, and it doesn't seek to simply, you know, end injustice or um, alleviate oppression, but rather to transform the context, the very context within which those terms are even meaningful. And I think that idea of a, you know, the political consequences of a visibly contradictory society is immensely, it's immensely difficult. And it is the way in which uh, Marxism itself has to, you know, is, cons I mean, what makes it so difficult, and I suppose, almost esoteric, from the viewpoint of our contemporary era when there is such little kind of um when there is no real meaningful organized labor movement to speak of and no working class politics um you know really to speak of either um beyond kind of occasional eruptions in the form of populism that you have it becomes very difficult to conceive of how those contradictions might be meaningfully navigated um, and I think that is, you know, so, I mean, you know, you think about, say, just uh, the issues of populism and technocracy as contradictions. How do you navigate those contradictions? Because on the one hand, you know, if um, populism has its appeal, you know, it kind of its affinity with democracy, its plebeian kind of energy, its hostility to snootiness and to um, the PMC domination of the state. And on the other hand, um, there is no avoiding the fact that in modern societies, you need reliance on um, tremendous reservoirs of complex knowledge and that you can't scorn. You can't simply scorn and deride the idea of um, representation or the idea of um, technical expertise. How do you navigate that, that, um, you know, that contradiction? And it's true. It is genuinely I, tremendously difficult and particularly outside a, the possibility of party politics. I have a, I have a solution. Or the beginnings of a solution. I'm already flinching in anticipation of how terrible <laughs> yeah. it's going to be. <laughs> Why? Just because of just because of the way you phrased your response. Well, no, it's it's the it, it, it's consonant with the the analysis that Berman put forward, and I think the one that you did as well, which is that the task of Marxism today is to defend and extend bourgeois rights. 
So all these ideas of freedom, freedom of expression, civil liberties, those things need to be fully defended in order to be extended. And that's the, so the contradiction isn't it, isn't escaped away from into populism. Instead, you look to the, the kind of liberal bourgeois I, I kind of I, and you try and you push them forward as, as much as possible. So you, you you try and be the true the true liberal, the true bourgeois in this kind of petty bourgeois society. That, that that's in. not unappealing. I mean, you know, normatively, like I have no problem with it. I just think it might be impossible insofar as that refers back to a certain 19th century conception, which might be impossible today. So for example, passports, not vaccine passports, which is a stupid term, not um, the levels of airport security, but I just mean needing a passport to cross borders, right? That would be a 19th century, that would be to a 19th century uh, individual's view of, of freedom, completely inimical. Right, you couldn't uh, impossible a passport to cross borders, and yet it is completely so part of our lives. It's not even under question, and I don't think you, George, are even proposing, for example, to abolish passports, for instance. So I, I just, I I'll, think I'll, I'm only, I'm I only raising mean, that. I'm only raising that to kind of draw out the the depth of the problem. No, I agree. I agree with that. I wouldn't I mean. include. I wouldn't include freedom of movement in one of those those bourgeois. But then you're not a bourgeois. Then you're, then you're not, not a bourgeois, bourgeois liberal. Yeah. I mean, I think the issue is that precisely that bourgeois liberalism enters into contradiction, and so I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I there it, many, many liberal rights I would defend, and I would see freedom of movement. I would, you know, defend a liberal, um, a liberal migration policy as liberal as possible, and I would, I think, freedom of movement is still something to be aspired to, but only under circumstances of um democratic control and without democratic oversight and control of that you know if it's not won democratically it's completely meaningless but that aside um i think you know i'd agree with alex i think the it's insufficient simply to imagine that we you know that those you defend classical classical rights classical liberal rights and simply radicalize them um and that in conditions of um global modernity that it's um they can only be kind of reconstituted at a higher level um the it's impossible simply to defend them in circumstances where they almost by themselves become you know meaningless conditions of privacy say um you know defending privacy in the context and this is when we talked about you know this returns to our conversation earlier when we with um on benjamin braddon's work how do you defend privacy meaningfully in a world in which um algorithmic prediction of your behavior is you know not perfect but um you know effective in many ways um and that seems to me you know you need it's incumbent on us to defend privacy but it seems to me at the same time insufficient and that i think is is our challenge so i don't think it's sufficient simply to um retreat kind of circle the wagons around liberalism that is insufficient hey there you've reached the end of a short excerpt from an episode that's been released only to our patrons if you'd like to join us and gain access to around two Patreon-exclusive episodes a month, please go to patreon.com slash We'd love to have you.